This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I really would like the listeners to realize that 1989 was a miraculous year, I think, in European history. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Mark Baker is an independent journalist and travel writer who's lived in Central Europe for more than two decades. He loves the history, literature, culture and mystery of this often overlooked corner of Europe and makes his living writing articles and guidebooks about the region. Do visit his excellent Eastern Europe blog, which contains a number of Cold War stories. Now, I'm sure you know that some of our fans are helping the podcast financially, so if you'd like to join this select band, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for the price of a couple of coffees a month. You help to cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air. Plus, you get that sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster too. So, back to today's episode. Mark was a journalist in Vienna who covered Czechoslovakia during the 1980s and in a wide-ranging conversation we discussed the events of 1989 with Mark providing some vivid accounts of his experiences and how events are viewed at the time. I'm delighted to welcome back Mark Baker to Cold War Conversations. Uh, the, the whole of 1989, I was working as a journalist in Vienna. Uh, we were working as a 10-man team uh, in, in Vienna. We were a subsidiary of the Economist Group, the British um, Economist magazine and the affiliated publications. And it was our job to uh, report on developments in Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe, but primarily from a business perspective. We weren't totally focused on political changes. Of course, we were completely interested in the political changes, but our job was basically to do the business reporting. And uh, throughout the entire year, I was basically in Vienna working as a journalist and an editor for that organization. Were you there from the start of 1989? Yes. Uh, yeah, I had come to Vienna in 1986 and stayed uh, through 1991. So through that entire year, 1989, I was working at my job, you know, just as a journalist in Vienna covering Eastern Europe. Solidarity in Poland in 1980 was probably the first sign of some sort of leniency in the form of independent movements right. in Eastern Bloc then, countries. That's true, but then they got totally, you know, jammed by Jaroszewski and martial law, and uh, they kind of disappeared from the scene for a while, and then they reemerged. But the point about 1989 that we should make for this podcast is that it was Poland that was the kickoff in 1989. And it was led by solidarity. You know, they had made a big comeback. And um, if you really want to look at the events of 1989, kind of sequentially, you could probably make a pretty good case that Poland was the very first country to kick off all those changes in 1989. Um, when they held in early June of that year, when they when they held um, elections in which uh, some solidarity-backed candidates were permitted to compete for uh, parliamentary positions in that election. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that's right. I think it was uh, February where they, the communist government of Poland, first entered into roundtable talks with um, solidarity, which then resulted in the the communist party allowing them to compete in that. June election, yes. thinking that yes. they wouldn't do very well and exactly. uh, getting it completely Precisely. wrong. Absolutely completely wrong. It was almost a clean sweep for solidarity in those races in which solidarity was permitted to compete in. And that was quite a shock and quite a come down for the Communist Party in Poland at the time. Yeah, 
Yeah. But even a, a, a month earlier, there's obviously Hungary where they start to dismantle the um, the border between Hungary and, and Austria as well. Right. Exactly. So um, uh, Poland and Hungary were uh, were part of the reform camp in Eastern Europe, clearly leading that uh, Hungary and Austria had begun discussions about uh, actually cutting the Iron Curtain between those two countries. And, um, and Hungary was making plans. I think it began first off as, as um, uh, Hungary began first to try to modernize the Iron Curtain because obviously barbed wire wasn't very effective in 1989. Um, but they didn't have the, uh, the money uh, the funds to completely redo the border in, in new technology. So they started to talk with, uh, with Russia, with Gorbachev, actually, as we know now, um, about what it would be to simply open the border with Austria and, uh, you know, in, in that, in that way. And, um, and Gorbachev more or less gave his okay for that type of development. So uh, those two things, Poland and Hungary kind of happened uh, more or less at the same time, concurrently. And then um, the leaders of Austria and Hungary meet actually in June in that field uh, in between the two countries and snip the cord symbolically, you know, cut the, um, cut the barbed wire between those two countries. So yes, uh, Poland and Hungary, you know, those were the, 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 those were the reform countries. They were leading the effort. Yeah. And, and Hungary, it's sort of been, almost quietly reforming, you know, for a few years before then as well. Um, I don't know whether your fellow journalists were, were picking up on sort of a, a, oh, a, oh, a sort of wind of liberalization coming through. <laughs> well, you know, look, all, throughout all of those decades, each of the countries was taking a kind of an individual um, uh, a position or an individual approach to trying to you know, uh, adhere to, you know, what, what life was like within the Soviet bloc, obviously not to get the Russians too or to get the Soviets, uh, too angry to, you know, propel them into some type of military invasion. At the same time, they had to deal with the very restive population and they wanted to avoid, they wanted to avoid domestic unrest strikes, etc. And Hungary had taken that goulash communism approach where they would try to put more of an emphasis in uh, consumer goods and making um, life under communism more bearable, more tolerable uh, for the general population. And that was their approach. Yes, that's correct. So you have um, elections in Poland. Uh, you have an embarrassing, humiliating defeat for the Communist Party in Poland. Um, <clears throat> uh, you have we now know through looking through the archives, you know, scholars going through the archives that Gorbachev had come under some pressure from his conservative uh, allies in the in Eastern Bloc. By conservative, I mean East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Hung and Romania, particularly Romania, to intervene militarily to stop what was going on in Poland. And he demurred for whatever reason, and that was never made public. Uh, the, the reaction, the Russian, the Soviet reaction to the elections in Poland was relatively muted, and that was highly significant. Then we have the cutting of the Iron Curtain between Hungary and Austria. Again, the reaction from Moscow was relatively muted. We now know that, that the Hungarians had an agreement with the Soviet Union in advance of that cutting of the, of the Iron Curtain. Uh, and so um, the reaction was, you know, Gorbachev had given his more or less his implicit uh, promise that there would be no uh, reaction from the Soviet Union from cutting that iron curtain with um, with Austria between Austria and Hungary. So that creates a lot of tension among this group of Warsaw Pact countries. Um, you know, we're not talking about the Baltic states right now because they're still um, part of the Soviet Union. But what we're talking about are um, Poland and Hungary on one side and East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, and Romania on the other side. And how Gorbachev is going to resolve this tension between those countries, you know, that are all allies, that are all allies of the Soviet Union, is and was the big um, guessing game that we were all going through while we were watching these revolutions unfold throughout the year. Yeah, no, I, I was going to say, I think it's it's probably worth mentioning that there's obviously Tiananmen Square 
in amongst this, which I think does have a lot of impact in terms of, you know, perhaps Gorbachev recognizing that a military solution is going to cut off all his funds from the West. And possibly that was the view of some of the other Warsaw Pact countries as well, to some degree. Tiananmen Square really, in a certain sense, limited Gorbachev's options in that sense, if Gorbachev had ever entertained, you know, a, a more of a of a harder crackdown in the first place, which I, I, I'm pretty sure that he did not. But people around Gorbachev certainly would have thought about that. Um, no, that, that was in June of 1989. And that was uh, very, very significant. Yes, you're right. So we were sitting there in <clears throat> in Vienna in July and August, really debating among ourselves a lot of different questions about Gorbachev. You know, first off, um, you know, really was he truly sincere in his glasnost and perestroika, his his reform policies, um, or was this just another sophisticated wrinkle to keep the Eastern European countries in line? That was one basic question. You know, there were some people who believe that Gorbachev was sincere. And there were other people, you know, more doubtful people, more skeptical people on the other side saying, it's it's kind of a trick, you know, right? Um, and then if he is sincere, then you have to ask yourself, okay, is he powerful enough? Does he have enough um, uh, sway within the Politburo in the Soviet Union in order to carry out those uh, those reforms? And if he does have that kind of power, then you have to go one step further and ask yourself, is he willing to risk Soviet domination in Eastern Europe to carry out those reforms? Because at their logical conclusion, you know, you kind of have to ask yourself, why do we need an Eastern Bloc? You know, I mean, there was a lot of democratic reform built into that model implicitly. So, I mean, nobody knew the answers to those questions. And we were sitting there in July of 1989, debating among ourselves all those answers. And, uh, and really, and really wondering how Gorbachev was going to come down, because I really do think, you know, Poland had made some significant strides in its in its um, in its election, etc. Hungary had cut that iron curtain, but I really do think in July or August, had the Soviet Union decided that enough was enough, let's roll back these reforms, you know, let's 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 suffer the diplomatic consequences, the recalling of ambassadors, etc. All the fluff and kerfuffle that's going to happen, but they could have rolled them back as late as July of 1989. At least that's my view. I really think that that's true. So what happens in July of 1989 is that the Warsaw Pact holds a very significant meeting of the uh, of its uh, heads of state in Bucharest. The host is Ceausescu. It's held in the Palace of Parliament, that enormous building in Bucharest. And all of the heads of state of the Warsaw Pact are invited to go down there and convene. And this was probably the most closely watched Warsaw Pact leaders meeting in, in human history. Because the big question was, was Gorbachev going to side with the reformers or was Gorbachev going to side with the hardliners? And that was still an open question. So, you know, what it would, might have been to be a fly on the wall of that big, huge building in there just to watch the looks on the hardliners' faces. Because what came out of that conference, um, you know, Gorbachev never spoke in really direct language. It was always difficult to pin him down on any, you know, particular detail of policy or anything like that. But he did speak in this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of gauzy diplo speak. And at this particular Warsaw Pact uh, convention, uh, Warsaw Pact Convention, uh, leaders, uh, heads of state meeting in, in Bucharest, he came up with this formulation that in the future, it would be up to the individual member states of the Warsaw Pact to be able to choose how to solve their national problems in their own way. And that's kind of more, that's paraphrasing more or less the formulation that he actually used at that meeting. And that was pretty clear indication that he was not going to side with the hardliners in this dispute. And it was also, if you want to read a little bit more into it, probably a pretty good indication that whatever happened in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union was not going to militarily intervene. Right. And 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 this was where his, well, as a result of this, his um, foreign minister famously said that 
it was no longer the Brezhnev doctrine, but it was the Sinatra doctrine because the countries could do it their way. Exactly, something like yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah, I have uh, probably completely mangled that, but uh, you'll get the gist. No. <laughs> no, it's really good. It's actually really good. So that was significant. And I think looking back, you know, historians will see that as the crucial turning point maybe not necessarily that one meeting, but those crucial months in which a lot of discussion was held, you know, probably within the Politburo, without the Politburo, among the different countries in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, um, you know, about which way um, the Soviet Union was ultimately going to go. And, you know, everything that happened after that, I think, um, you know, the fall of the wall in Berlin, the fall of the regime in Bulgaria, um, the Velvet Revolution in Prague, and of course um, the uh, the deposing of Ceausescu and his ultimate execution at the very end of 1989 is kind of a denouement that followed from that uh, from that public formulation in July, and then what went on in July and August. Yeah, well, I guess it sort of removed that always the 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 big stick that all of these regimes had which was to call the soviets in um and by exactly. removing that threat it gave these you know nascent movements in these countries uh, a sort of confidence that they wouldn't have had before i think it would even more than that um uh you know look if you're repressing your population um you can, um, and you're East Germany or Czechoslovakia or, or in the most extreme sense, uh, Romania, um, you know, uh, you can get away with a lot if you can say, look, if you don't go along with me, the Soviet Union is going to come in and going to settle things once and for all. I mean, you can almost get away with anything. Once that threat is removed, then suddenly you're on your own to make that those decisions. How are you going to continue that those repressive policies. And uh, if you don't have the Soviet Union backing you militarily, then you also have to ask yourself and, you know, the people across the table from you ruling that country, whether you're willing to fire on your own people to enforce your rule. And that was crucial. Yeah. Yeah. Because I guess, you know, the, the way the the way it would be play, played out to some degree is, look, I'm the lesser of two evils. If you don't follow my... Um, lead here the soviets will come in and it will be far worse which is almost what yaruzelski did with martial law in poland in 81 absolutely exactly right um yeah no it's good cop bad cop and you know um and if you have that if you have that ultimate weapon in your back pocket you can basically do anything once you lose that weapon then you're really at the mercy of your own you know your own uh, uh willingness to use force on your population or your own power to actually control your own population. Yeah. And, uh, you know, history in 1989, history gave us some really good examples of uh, what you can, you know, what, what happens when you lose that Soviet, uh, that, th that ultimate threat of military uh, force, um, uh, you know, whether you relinquish uh, power peacefully or whether you try to do it on your own, as Ceausescu did, and it really didn't end very well for him. So after the Warsaw Pact meeting, what's the sort of next major milestone, you would say, in 89? Well, uh, I think the, the cutting of the Iron Curtain between Hungary and Austria doesn't get enough credit, I don't think, in terms of really setting the whole stage in motion for what would what would happen throughout the year in 1989 um you know it seems pretty simple you know hungary and austria all you know had a very long relationship that goes back centuries and it seems very normal that they shouldn't have a border between them but once you cut that cord all of the other people in in eastern europe and central europe particularly in east germany but everywhere basically started to make that calculation aha uh -huh, if i can only get to hungary then i can get to the west and almost, you know, in getting to Hungary for any of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe was relatively easy because the movement on that side of the curtain, you know, was fairly unrestricted up until that point. Um, so what happens is that uh, eventually a lot of uh, people, particularly East Germans, end up traveling over the summer to Hungary 
and start massing at the border in that we're talking about August now in September. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the next major, that's kind of the next major development in, in Eastern Europe. And then we have this pan European picnic that happened. Uh, that was, uh, a, 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 a gathering of East Germans on the border between Hungary and Austria. And finally the Hungarian government came under so much pressure from the Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. From the people on the ground there... That, uh, that they just allowed those people, the East Germans, to go into Austria, you know, free, unmolested. So once that happened, that kind of started, that was kind of like, you know, the, the breaking, slow breaking uh, dissolution of the dam, of the wall, you know, in, in a sense. And, and wasn't there big influxes into West German embassies in Eastern Europe at this time as well? Exactly. So we have the pan-European picnic in Hungary. We have the release of those East Germans, tens of thousands of East Germans into Austria. And suddenly, you know, the East German population is very uh, restive. Uh-huh. Well, you let them go through in, in Hungary. Well, then why don't we just go to Czechoslovakia and go to uh, go to Prague and go to the West German embassy and demand, you know, that we be able to go across the border, etc. So in September, you have a, a great massing of people, of mostly East Germans, uh, in the in Prague at the West German embassy there, demanding um, a special entry visas uh, into the West. Um, and then you have that that electric moment when the uh, foreign min the German foreign the West German foreign minister at the time, uh, a man called ha um, um, Hans uh, Dietrich Genscher, uh, goes to Prague at the very end of September. I believe it was September thirtieth. Um, uh, there's thousands of East Germans gathered at the West German compound around the West German compound in Prague and all around central Prague, Malastrana, where the embassy is located at. And Genscher comes out and he says that he has some special permissions that he's going to be able to grant them that the people there will be able to go into the West, into West Germany in specially sealed trains. And this is crazy, you know, um, uh, you know, like, the people are leaving East Germany and getting to the West by kind of going around the wall, the Berlin wall, you know, this was setting some very dangerous precedents for the regime in East Germany to main, to be able to maintain control. So, you know, after that meeting in Bucharest, then we have the, the East Germans in Hungary, then the East Germans in Czechoslovakia coming through Prague and slowly the edifice is dissolving all around the edges. Of course, it's still standing in the middle of Berlin, but all around the periphery, you know, it's breaking down and people are coming over. Yeah. So that sort of sets the stage for the fall of the wall that happened in the first week of uh, of November or the end of the first week of November. What, what did you see in Prague during those days? One of one of my ideas about 1989 that I really uh, that I really think is important, and and I'm going to be writing about this on my own blog uh, in the future, is that these uh, the fall of the wall and all of these regime all of the regime change that went on all, uh, in 1989, you know, was somehow predictable, foreseeable, that it was inevitable somehow that uh, if you didn't see it coming, then you were really missing something, and uh, you know. As a person who is there watching all of this unfold, I can tell you that that is absolutely not true. You know, we really didn't have any great idea how, how things would end up from day to day, week to week. And when I say that, I say that with some personal experience because um, at the end of September and the beginning of October, the company that I was working for, Business International, this affiliate of The Economist in, in Vienna, sent me to Prague to ask people on the street 
whether they thought that the that a re, that any type of regime change, any type of uh, liberation, could happen anytime soon in Prague. And uh, this was almost exactly the same time that Genscher was there. All those East Germans were there. He was giving them their their special permissions and visas to get to West Germany through those specially sealed trains. And I'm on the street at approximately the same week, basically asking people in Wenceslas Square and Central Prague, well, could it happen here? I mean, look what's going on in East Germany. Look at these people come going to the West. Look what happened in Poland. Look what happened in Hungary. Change is inevitable. And Ian, to the last man and woman on the square, no, it can't happen here. It won't happen here. You know, um, our regime is too hard line. Um, you know, we don't have the, the the opposition in place to actually affect revolution here in Czechoslovakia. Uh, people simply didn't believe that it was possible. And this was at the end of September, October, just say six weeks or seven weeks before the Velvet Revolution would start up in Prague. So it's just, uh, you know, amazing. So, you know, when I say, well, you can't really predict you know, you, you couldn't have foreseen what was going on because even in the right in the midst of all that change, people still didn't believe that it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's always easy to look with hindsight and think, oh, yeah, that that was the deciding factor and that was a deciding factor. But hearing from somebody who was on the ground at the time and you're not the only person I've heard this from, which is sort of like we had no idea that it was going to unravel so quickly. You, you know, you might have thought, well, there might be some liberalization to some degree, but not that the whole of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union was going to disappear within, you know, a couple of years. No, and, and I really, when I said earlier, when I said that Soviet Union could have rolled it back if it had chosen to do so and pay the diplomatic price, but no Western country would have gone to war uh, to free the Eastern Bloc at that time. I mean... You know, I, I really just don't don't believe that it was really Gorbachev's blundering or tenacity or, or or a combination of both of those that really allowed that gave the cover for all of this to happen. And you know, and and, and you know, that's that's something that could not have been foreseen or predicted at all. The the borders open in Hungary, so we have East Germans uh, leaving the country. There, the sealed trains have. Uh, left Prague and have passed through East Germany, and that's because Honecker wants to make it look as though he's letting these people leave rather than them leaving of their own of their own volition. Um, but by doing that, he causes even more unrest in East Germany. Absolutely, he he had to come up with a very creative or his leadership. He was already on the way out by that time, more or less. Um, the people around him had to come up with some pretty contorted explanations to explain that. You know, one of them was that uh, that the East Germans that uh, had gone to Hungary and had gone to Czechoslovakia to Prague were being bribed by Deutschmarks, of course, and and food, and and they were basically being bought to go across the border. You know, in a kind of propaganda move by the West, which of course wasn't true. Yeah, no, absolutely. So. Um... Gorbachev arrives in Berlin in October, doesn't he, for the uh, 40th anniversary of the GDR? Uh, th that was a very, um, yes, yeah, that was a very uh, inopportune anniversary, if there ever was one. Um, yeah, the East German leadership was undergoing tremendous change at that point. There were, uh, there were uh, protests beginning uh, throughout the country. There was, of course, that episode in the embassy. And um, and Honecker himself is uh, on the way out, and uh, the East Germans uh, get a new leader at that time, a guy named Egan Krenz, uh, who is sort of nominally meant to be a change from Honecker, but in a sense is simply um, a friendlier version of that same repressive East German policy. So essentially no change in East Germany. What happens after that is, uh, of course, we get the Berlin Wall falling, you know, through uh uh, a, a crazy and silly and stupid bureaucratic blunder, a kind of misinterpretation of a, of a general decree that would make travel to the West easier for East Germans is kind of uh, mistakenly uh, interpreted to mean that the that order would go into effect immediately and that and that people could uh, presumably simply walk through the wall. Of course, that wasn't exactly the policy. People heard it on the radio. 
People saw it on television, they saw the transcripts, and they decided to test it. And they were going to put these regulations through the next day. He just jumped the gun. And there was going to be more bureaucracy around free movement. You did have to apply to your local police station, I think, right. for paperwork. And But it was kind of like the surprise and the ease uh, and 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 also exposing the fact that the guards would no longer shoot on the crowds, and that is really what made the day. I mean, that was really what changed the the whole atmosphere. Uh, once you know that the guards aren't going to shoot at you, then you know why not walk right through yeah. the you know right through the gate. And suddenly, you know, people say at that at that very moment, you know, in a in a kind of a conceptual sense. East Germany ceased to exist. Yeah, yeah, because that that shoot to kill at the wall order was rescinded in in April, I think, eighty nine, but nobody knew about it apart from the border guards. Right. But obviously, on the evening of the eighth of November, uh, there was so much pressure on the border crossings in in Berlin, and the. Border guards were getting no information from their superiors as to what to do, which really resulted in people power forcing those borders open and people being able to travel yes. through. Amazing scenes. Can you remember, you know, when you first heard that the that the wall was open? Uh, I, I was in Vienna at the time. I was not in Berlin. Um, I, you know, it was just, uh, uh, you know, obviously an incredible moment. And so... Uh, my girlfriend at the time in Vienna, we went on the, the 9th to Berlin and we, uh, yeah, on the day of the 9th and we spent about three or four days there. We couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I was in Vienna. Her, I saw it in the newspaper, saw it on television. And the very next day we were on the train and going up to Berlin to see it for ourselves. Wow. And and just describe sort of what, what it was like, if you can. It it was absolutely amazing to be able to uh, just uh, you know we spent a lot of time in the, on the public transportation system of course and riding around through that and it was just you know yeah it was just a, an amazing party um, yeah no I I, I you know <laughs> uh, I had just uh, come back from that trip to Prague in which I had interviewed all, all those people who told me that change was not going to come to Czech, Czechoslovakia and I had actually written that type of story for our magazine, Business Eastern Europe. And, um, of course, immediately I, I felt like I totally missed the story, you know? <laughs> so I guess I was a little bit bittersweet. Yeah, you well, know, I think it's fair to say that you weren't you weren't the only one there. So did you have a, you know, w did you actually say to yourself at the time, wow, I'm here in Berlin at such a pivotal moment in history, or, or did you not think it was such a big event both actually i mean it was an enormous event i was you know uh, i i you know um but uh, i i didn't have the presence of mind to really document it i mean it, uh, somehow we were just carried away with events i when i look at my pictures of berlin from that that time um uh you know <laughs> it's just us standing on a you know uh, on a on a train platform or something like that there's very little of the excitement of the time so i don't know what i was pointing my camera at you know i'm not sure but no we were completely aware of the of the historic moment uh, of that i just wish i had more of a presence of mind to have kept better notes um to have written really what my impressions were and what i was seeing at the time exactly and what i was thinking about it at the time because um obviously you know that's very important for you know to 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 when you look back on on like in our conversation to be able to have those notes at my disposal and really to be able to tell you exactly what i was thinking i, I all i can remember is that i was very excited you know taken by su complete surprise also professionally and um i think having a pretty good time yeah i was going to say maybe you hit around. the uh, sect too much or uh, i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember where we stayed. I don't even really remember how we got up there. Yeah, well, there you go. That tells a story in itself, Mark. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my. <laughs> um, so, so the wall falls, and um, I was, you know, obviously we do a bit of research around this uh, podcast, and I was looking into that, and there's one footnote that sort of gets forgotten. Is the next day that 
Todor Zvikov, um, the leader of Bulgaria, resigns, which is often right. forgotten about. Yes. I think in the in sort of like the Berlin Wall Velvet Resolu- Revolution and uh, Ceausescu um, side of things, that people forget that Bulgaria also right. folded. Exactly. Yep, and and relatively peacefully, uh, you know. So, um, so yeah, they just started. Um, you know, once once the ramifications of that, you know, of Gorbachev's pronouncements in July and August, in August, but mostly in, in July at that time, really took hold. Um, and then we had those East Germans coming through the border, etc. The fall of the wall. It really was apparent, and no reaction. Really, no, no military reaction, no harsh reaction from the Soviet Union. It, the writing really is on the wall, and that really explains the situation. I think in Bulgaria, yeah, yeah, you know, where they they realized they wouldn't they wouldn't get the Soviet Union, the cavalry to the rescue yeah. to oppose that. Of course, Todorov was an old man and a really a spent force uh, by the time 1989 rolls around, as was Eric Honecker. And as was, frankly, the leadership in uh, in Czechoslovakia at yeah, the time. Yeah, I have a great photo, which I think might have been taken at that 1989 Ceausescu-Warsaw Pact meeting of all the Warsaw Pact leaders. Uh-huh. And it's just a bunch of old men. Right. Really old men. Yes, exactly. But you have to ask yourself, um, you know, was Gorbachev really letting these old guys out to dry? You know, when he made those pronouncements, I mean, was he really aware of what was going to be happening so soon, relatively soon after making those comments? Um, you know, I, I really don't know the answer to that question. Well, I, I, I think he probably hoped that there would be reformers that would come in that would still keep that uh, socialist form of government, you right. know, almost like, you know, Dubček's socialism with a human face. Um but not actually, you know, the the whole alliance, Warsaw Pact alliance implode, and you know, right. um, and all that, you know, all else that happened. Right. But when he was sitting there in that room and telling them this thing, did he realize that he was basically signing the? Let's see, death sentence is a little bit too strong, but for at least for those regimes, those conservative regimes, and that it was going to happen very soon. You know, within a matter of months after that. I think he probably realized for those particular forms of regimes, but I think he he still hopes that there would be some form of socialist government bound to the the Soviet Union. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I think it's pretty clear on, on that one. Oh, okay, we're in early November, and um, and uh, suddenly the action or say mid-November now, suddenly the action shifts to Prague and the Velvet Revolution. And, um, you know, one of the strange, you know, you know, one of the things that, at least in the middle of the year, prevented us as analysts and journalists working in that region from really grasping what was happening and foreseeing, being able to foresee it, was that in all of the Eastern European countries, with the exception of Poland, there was no real organized resistance to communist rule in any of the Eastern European countries. You know, um, there was some church-led resistance in East Germany, I mean, in, throughout 1989. And there was the dissidents, of course, some dissidents in Czechoslovakia. Um, and there was a little bit, a sprinkling of church-led resistance in Romania. But there was no real organized force that could that was strong enough to push these guys out of power and then the next day pick up and run the trains and run the factories, et cetera, that you need to do for a country the next day. You know, there was just that they didn't have that kind of organizational power. So um, I guess the exception to that would be Poland with solidarity. Exactly. That Yeah, there was the exception. Which yeah, was with, probably more, more organized. Of, that, of the countries, really, only solidarity in Poland had, uh, had that had that there. But um, so when we were looking at a country like Czechoslovakia, um, you know, who was going to bring about this revolution? It was a real question. Um, You know, sure, there was Havel and we learned a lot about him. Václav Havel, we learned a lot about him, you know, later on down the road. But at the time, 
um, you know, they had the moral authority, but they didn't have any of the, you know, the masses of people behind them, or at least we didn't know that they did, you know, at the time, uh, it was just a relatively small organization. So, um, the thing that really surprised us very positively, and I think really set the gold standard for revolutions, for regime change revolutions, you know, for, you know, since then, and maybe going forward was the Velvet Revolution in Prague, which started on November 17th and carried on through the month of November and into early December. And by the end of the year, uh, Václav Havel, the dissident playwright, uh, was the president of Czechoslovakia, which was <laughs> absolutely unforeseeable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was listening to an interview the the other day with, um, can't remember who it was, but they were saying that they'd interviewed um, Harvel in 1987 and asked him if um, he, he thought he would see, you know, any regime change um, coming. And he said, not in my lifetime. <laughs> yes. Um, well, so, I mean, I, I can't foresee it. Who can foresee it? Exactly, exactly. And and how did they manage to force the Politburo to resign in I mean, because you know, he, he was only a, a dissident playwright. Right. I say only, um, but you know, I'm not trying to <laughs> but you know, he he's he's not exactly um yeah. Well, okay, if there hadn't been Poland, if there hadn't been Hungary, if there hadn't been East Germany, of course, and the fall of the wall then there wouldn't have been a velvet revolution. I think that that's really clear, you know, so, you know, all of these, this great, um, these great revolutions, you know, didn't take place in a vacuum, you know, they all took place, you know, in, in, in a certain, um, even though each country did their own thing and really had their own kind of imprint, their own identity onto it. Um, the events unfolded in, in such a way that they kind of, all of them needed that other event to get that going. You know, there wouldn't have been any East Germany or Berlin Wall if there hadn't been a Hungarian cutting of the of the Iron Curtain. And uh, and I really think that in Prague, you know, when you ask how could uh, Václav Havel, you know, orchestrate that, well, that he didn't really do that. Um, you know, the, the revolution started out as protest, a student protest on November 17th, but not to protest the communist government. But, um, uh, you know, it, it was a kind of protest against the communist government, of course. But uh, it, it, it was the protest was held under the aegis of of protesting um, uh, the Nazi Germany, uh, the um, the uh, Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia at the start of World War Two. And um the uh, exiling and the murder of Czechoslovak students and Czech students at the universities in Prague. And, um, and so that's what they were nominally protesting. You know, that's why the, um, that's why the leaders of Czechoslovakia gave them the permission to hold the protest because it was an officially sanctioned protest. Um, but it took on the characteristic of, um, of a kind of, if they can do it in Berlin, we can do it in Prague. Let's bring down this, uh, uh, this government um, protest that really gathered uh, pace. And um, when the protest ended on the night of November 17th, it was uh, forcibly stopped right in the center of Prague by, um, by the police, by the, by the secret police, by the military police and, uh, and by the communist authorities. And, um, you know, that first night there was rumors of violence. There was even rumors of one of the students had been killed by the police. In fact, there was not just rumors of violence. There was violence. I mean, they were getting beaten. The students were getting beaten. Um, and that electrified that first night of protest, the, the beatings, um, that electrified the country and propelled the country into more or less a week of, of upheavals, revolutions, and etc. And, it was that enormous showing of people power uh, that convinced the communist uh, government to relinquish power eventually. Of course, it didn't come right away. You know, they, they kept negotiating, bargaining, you know, we'll give you this if you give us that. Call off the protests and we'll give you this, we'll give you that. But in the end, um, the protesters got everything, more or less everything that they demanded in the, yeah. in the Velvet Revolution. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I well, there's many things I like about the Velvet Revolution, but the the uh, jangling of the keys in the yes, demonstrations. The yeah, yes. can you just talk um, talk about that a bit? Because I think it's a, it's a lovely uh, way of demonstrating. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, the symbolic of the jangling of the keys is basically to show the person to leave. The, the room, you know, leave the door or something, you know, or, or, or leave. That's, that's the symbolism of the keys. Um, but I think that the Velvet Revolution was significant in, in so many different ways. Um, up until that point, you know, I may be wrong, and I'm sure, I'm sure that there have been other more successful, there, there were other successful people power revolutions. But, but I think the Velvet Revolution, more than any other revolution that we've had in modern times, shows that a relatively powerless group of people can achieve amazing ends um, if they if they are you know organized in their goals and uh, if they're resolute in their determination to make change and of course if they have you know an uh, you know an amazingly articulate and charismatic leader like Václav Havel at the front of it and of course a lot of support from the rest of the world but uh, I mean, it really showed us, uh, I think, uh, as a planet, you know, the elements that you need to have in place to affect change. And, uh, you know, it, it's just the fact that so many people demonstrated the fact that so few people really, really were really injured, the fact that they got there, that they managed to secure, you know, all of their demands um, peacefully um, is just an inspiration for everyone. Yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. However, the last domino in the uh, the Warsaw Pact doesn't um, fall so um, smoothly, oh. does it? <laughs> well, okay. So going back to the earlier part of the conversation, where we have these historical examples of where, when the let's say the 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 the, the threat of military force in this case the soviet threat the implied threat of military force is taken away and the regimes have to come up with that decision of what they're going to do and are they going to you know are they going to relinquish power peacefully or are they going to try to fight their way out of it without that backing from the soviet union um in east germany and in czechoslovakia they opted for the former you know they they saw the writing on the wall. They decided they weren't going to open fire, thankfully, on the populations. There wasn't going to be much of any bloodshed on the streets. Ceausescu made the, the, the Romanian uh, dictator at the time, who had been uh, in power since at least the mid-1960s, Nicolae Ceausescu, um, he made the very, very wrong calculation. I think maybe blinded by his own narcissism, by his own belief in his own myth-making, um, he really did believe that he could uh, that he could scare the population into continuing to obey him, even though he had lost a lot, a, a very important lever of his control. Um, so, um, you know, the Romanian revolution, let's call it, doesn't start up until about a month after the Velvet Revolution. So let's fast forward until mid-December, December 16th and December 17th. Um, some small and getting gathering pace protests start in cities outside of the capital of Bucharest, not directly in Bucharest, but outside the capital. So the most important one was in the city of Timisoara, which is in the western part of the country. And there um, it was um, actually led by a Hungarian um, reform, uh, Protestant reform uh, preacher. Um, he led a um, uh, an anti-Ceausescu reform in Timisoara. Um, Ceausescu did not take that reform that take, did not take that protest very seriously. In fact, he even made a trip out of the country once the once the um, once the the protest started in Timisoara on December 16, 17. He actually leaves the country and he 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 visits Iran, I believe, and then comes back a couple of days later. So he was out of the country. He, the protests begin, he leaves the country, and then he comes back. That's how much he actually believed in his own ability to control the events. You know, there was no way in his mind that he could see himself losing this uh, this demonstration. I don't know if, what he was seeing when he was looking around at the rest of the Eastern Bloc. He was really the last remaining holdout. 
but yeah, the collapse of the Ceausescu regime is 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 insane. Um, you know, at, at at one point, the protests are swelling all around the country. They're growing in Bucharest. He goes out on the he goes out on on one of his balconies, one on one of the um, one of the leadership buildings, right in the middle of Bucharest. And uh, and starts addressing the crowd. He still can't believe that they would start to uh, that there would be any type of revolution. And he starts to promise them very modest wage increases, etc. And then you start to hear the beginnings of dissent among the crowd, and then a little bit of down with Ceausescu, you know, a little bit of um, uh, you know, a little bit of protest noise, and it really shatters him. It really shakes him because he's never heard this kind of thing before. You know, he can't believe what he's what he's hearing. And that is a priceless piece of uh, TV because you actually see the moment when he realizes the game is up. You see the moment, the fear in his eyes when the game is up. Yeah, yeah. So he eventually it's it's a comical, you know, it's a it's a like a, out of a Harold Lloyd movie or something like that. This uh this escape that that that, that they plan, they actually take off from a helicopter. Uh, off the roof of that building on the very last day that he's in power, basically that's December twenty second. Um, the um, the air, the helicopter leaves from the roof. It lands at a resort nearby Bucharest. Then they get up in the air, uh, in the helicopter again. The helicopter pilot tells him some story that he's got to fly low because there's um, there's some. Um, you know they could they they could be shot down by um, by gunfire by artillery by anti aircraft fire from the ground. So uh, Ceausescu gets really scared, orders the helicopter to go down. So they land in the middle of absolutely nowhere in Romania, and the um, it's just a, a really crazy story. They're uh, picked up by uh, as hitchhikers by a random guy driving a you know just driving his car. Eventually, they're caught. Uh, by a military base near the uh, near the city of Turgovice, which is a city, you know, it's about, let me guess, probably about a um, hundred or so kilometers from Bucharest, a uh, pretty remote town, and uh, and they have a, a a military base where the where Ceausescu and his wife Elena um, are held, um, and then uh, and then they can't figure out what to do with them. Uh, by this time, the army has already changed to the side of the protesters. Um, and so it's pretty clear that the jig is up. And it's pretty clear that the there's no great fear in the population now of a Ceausescu-led reprisal against the protesters. So people feel more emboldened to act on their passions, let's say. And, uh, and in the case of Ceausescu and his wife, Elena, this doesn't work out too well. Um, they are tried in a, that, you know, they're held in this tribunal, an ad hoc tribunal. They're tried and, uh, convicted of crimes against the state, all kinds of things. And then on, uh, Christmas day, they're put up against the wall together and, um, and they're killed by firing squad and pretty bloody, uh, put down of that revolution or not put down of that revolution, but I mean, uh, uh, you know, the fulfillment of the revolution by, by bringing down the Ceausescu regime. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I think uh, an interesting footnote to all of these uh, changes in Eastern Europe in 1989 is in some countries, even though the you know the dictator has has gone, a lot of people from the former regime still seem to hang on to power in some shape or form in the subsequent governments. I think Romania is a particular example of that. I I, I think that we learned another lesson from 1989 uh, that we can use going forward and that how your revolution takes place determines a lot about your immediate prospects afterwards. You know, um, I think Czechoslovakia got a nice boost uh, internationally, certainly generated a lot of goodwill by carrying out such a successful, peaceful protest. Of course, Poland uh, did it electorally, you know, and that was a you know a very positive development, and in Romania, um, basically, you know, I mean, in I, we didn't talk about what what happened in Bucharest after Ceausescu left, but there was a lot of heavy fighting on the street. Um, it's still unclear uh, how many people died in the Romanian Revolution, but estimates are around a thousand, give or take. I mean, that's a lot of 
people to die uh, for, for, for this kind of change. And the execution of Ceausescu and his wife seemed to be done in such a, um, a you know, a slipshod way. I mean, you know, I mean, of course, the, 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 the he was a dictator, was a very cruel individual, um, you know, um, but just the way that the whole thing was carried out, um, I think it really set Romania back several years in its development, maybe a decade in its development, just the way that the revolution yeah. You, you think that if there'd, you think that if there'd been a a proper trial and and proper justice, then then that would have turned out differently. I, I think what I do think is that if there had been a, 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 it's really hard to describe this because maybe this level of political maturity didn't exist uh, in the Romanian population because of Ceausescu's policies because he was so affected effective. At um, you know, at um, at eliminating any type of, of of opposition, you know, anywhere, but the protests didn't have the quality of of like civil governance behind them. There, what you know, it wasn't. It didn't feel like a, a mature, you know, a popularly led uh, movement against uh, uh, against a dictator. It, it really f- seemed like. A very angry and and desperate people trying to get rid of a very very bad person. So um, maybe there was nothing that could have been done that would have made it easier for Romania to do that. But I do think if there had been some different type of tribunal, there would have been a lot more answers that came out about how the revolution really happened. Because if you talk to Romanians, if you go to Bucharest, people still have a lot of questions about how that revolution took place, who was on what side who really were the winners and the losers in that revolution. And there was never the opportunity for the trust to develop, you know, in, uh, among the population in the new leadership. So, and, and I think the country, you know, uh, maybe remaining listeners to the podcast might disagree with me, but I think the country suffers to this day because of that, how it all unfolded in, in, a, in a sense. Yeah. 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 And Ceausescu's regime was probably the most repressive of the Warsaw Pact at that time, would you say? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, I think uh, they were all repressive in their differently repressive ways, yeah. you know, if you can understand that. But Ceausescu was repressive in a ruthless way, like a, uh, like almost a Central Asian dictatorship way, you know, in which, um, uh, you know, I think by the time, you know, in, in the rest of Eastern Europe, by the time the 50s were over, uh, dissidents weren't being killed. They were being jailed. But in Ceausescu's Romania, you were never really sure exactly what was going to happen, you know, in a sense. So uh, I think that he was already playing by different rules, you know, even then. He, yeah, when you said the most repressive, I definitely agree with that for sure. Yeah, yeah. And his policies were causing some real misery as well, more so than perhaps some of the other regimes. Oh, oh absolutely. Um you know, it's it's um, it's it's interesting when you compare like living standards at the time because you know, it, of course, at Business International, that was our really our bread and butter was to look at the different countries from the eco- economic perspective. The most developed countries were East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and uh, a little bit further down the line was Hungary, um, and then came Poland, and then at the very bottom of the ledger came Romania. I did write about this, the events of 1989 for my blog, um, and uh, it. by the time this airs, it should be published. I w- really would like the listeners to realize that 1989 was a miraculous year, I think, in European history. Somehow, a 30th anniversary is kind of an awkward anniversary. It doesn't feel quite as significant as 25th, the quarter century or the 50th, but it is a round number and it is kind of worth just taking a moment to think back on those, on that date. I think, you know, it was, um, a very unexpected, uh, uh, turn of events as we've discussed here. Um, uh, and yet, um, it, you know, probably very likely the most important year in the post-war history of Europe of the 20th century. You know, it's, it's, it's just an amazing, series of events it could have gone any direction at any point during that year like i said the soviet union could have rolled it back if it if it wanted to at mid-year and it was just um 
you know, uh, I think looking back, a kind of an amazing piece of good fortune for the world that things happened as they did, you know, that there was a Gorbachev at that time, and that somehow the sequence of events in Europe unfolded in such a way that could propel the next country to take the step, that could propel the next country to take the step, etc. And it's only at the very bitter end that we get the bloodshed throughout most of the year. It was a very peaceful transition, a peaceful and very uplifting for our planet transition. And I think that's the lesson of 1989 that we have to keep in mind. So do visit Mark's excellent blog. Just search Mark Baker Prague in your search engine. Alternatively, head over to our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 83. This will also show as a link in some podcast apps. There's videos and photos there of the momentous events of 1989. Don't forget, if you'd like to get that Cold War Conversations coaster and keep us on the air, head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate or click on the link in your podcast app. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like yourselves continue the cold war conversation just search cold war conversations in facebook thank you very much for listening it is really appreciated goodbye Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.